You are listening to the Savage Wonder Podcast. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran or immediate family member in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest this week was Deborah Yarchin, and I'm going to talk about Deborah. I have a couple of caveats to throw out ahead of time. Uh, I am late on getting <laughs> getting this episode out, and I am actually running into the city the second this intro is over. No, I take that back. The second the outro is over. Uh, for the industry read of Deborah's play, The Calm Before, so I am really pushing it. Uh, literally, the vet rep team is waiting on me to record this to get into the car. So this might not be the most eloquent, comprehensive, and worthy intro I could have possibly managed for Deborah. Yes, there are reasons why this happened. Let me just stipulate that. There, there's not. I, I did not. Uh, I, I don't normally operate quite this chaotically, but this is just how it played out uh, today. So. Deborah, uh, Air Force daughter, Air Force sibling of a current Air Force service member. Um, she qualified, obviously, therefore, for our competitions, and her plays were just outstanding. She is, I've read four of her plays. You'll hear us talk about it during the interview, but I've read, um, yeah, one, two, yeah, four of her plays that she's submitted. I'll talk specifically about two of them. Uh, because we'll kind of dive into them. Well, maybe I'll give it kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of all of them, but uh, she submitted a play to us called Drive that I really liked that was um, uh, you know, set in the near future and about the trucking industry and it just really fascinating subject matter that nobody writes about and written in a way that was really interesting and compelling. Um, and Son of a Bitch, it got produced uh, ahead of us, so it was no longer a world premiere, uh, but was a really interesting piece that I thought would have been really interesting to develop. Uh, anyway, I don't think I even told Deborah that, but anyway, uh, that first brought her to my attention. I was like, oh, she's a really interesting playwright. But she also submitted uh, in the same competition, The Calm Before, which is the play that narrowly, um, I think I can say, uh, did not make the top three, uh, I think placed fourth in our initial inaugural playwriting competition. But I really liked, um, a lot of people really liked, and it was a play that I wanted to develop and produce with her, and we are taking that very first step, assuming I record this intro in a timely manner, today. Um, so it's really exciting. Well, you'll hear us talk about it. Obviously, we can't ignore the elephant in the room when we start talking, but it is. Uh, we had the great fortune to uh, get Jessica Blank to direct it. Jessica's um, prolific theater director, writer, actress, um, and she works in many different media, but, uh, you know, TV, even film, but uh, but has a real um, home base in theater. And, um, and Jessica, uh, you know, really getting her on, on board was a huge thing for us. Um, we got Krista Rodriguez, uh, who is just a phenomenal, uh, 
uh, I don't think the word, the phrase Broadway star would be inappropriate. Um, she's currently on Broadway in a show called The Collaboration, and she agreed to come in and play one of the lead roles. There's only two roles uh, in the play for our industry read later today. And then we got uh, Michael Gaston to play the other role who's just – look him up. You'll know him the second you see him. Uh, he's been in a million TV shows, movies. He's done Broadway. He did uh, the Tom Hanks play Lucky Guy when Tom Hanks came to Broadway um, a few years ago. So we're incredibly lucky to get those two on board and to have Jessica at the helm. So we will have an invite-only industry reading later today. So by the time you're listening to this, uh, it may, it depends how quickly Mike Neal, our stalwart producer, can get this turned around. The reading may be going on while you're listening to it, if you're one of the first people to listen to it. If you're listening to it after Monday, then <laughs> then it was happening yesterday. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how much more there will be to say about it then. But anyway, that's what it is that we're that Deborah and I start talking about um, and the combo forum, just obviously a huge fan of. Uh, Deborah submitted two more plays to our second playwriting competition, though, that I want to mention, uh, a play called Great White, um, which was a very atmospheric, uh, moody, uh, intriguing, disturbing piece, and uh, Tectonic Melange, which... Uh, Great White almost made the top 10, and Tectonic Melange actually won our full-length playwriting competition in our, for our second go-around at it. Um, so, you know, phenomenal play. Phenomenal play. And uh, about uh, a geologist in North Dakota uh, looking at the uh, uh, you know, terrain for uh, development and for, uh, you know, oil development and I don't know, what am I saying? A whole bunch of geological concerns that go into your prep work before you can drill for oil. That's what I'm sort of trying to say. Uh, again, a subject matter that you do not expect to see a play about, um, but Deborah handles it uh, very deftly. And um, yeah, I and I say this because you're going to hear her talk a lot about her process and about some of the legwork that she puts into this. As you can tell when you're talking about like, trucking industry and the oil industry and geology you know that's not stuff you can just kind of parachute in and write about you kind of have to you know know what the hell you're talking about and the uh the research she does is is really interesting on those subjects so you'll hear about that i'm trying to think if there's anything else you need to know that deborah and i will talk about during the interview i don't think there is um i i you know, it's funny. It's it's a little weird. This is a weird episode in that a lot of times I like to talk to people for the first time in these shows because then I'm sincerely asking questions and, you know, I don't know where they're coming from and I'm really getting to know people. Um, Deborah and I have been talking for, you know, many months. So it uh, I had made a point while we were talking, uh, you know, just talking shop and talking business to try to not ask many personal questions because I wanted to do this podcast and, you know, have a sense of novelty to it. So, um, so it was great to finally be able to gush over her work to her face and everything and, and ask her questions and, uh, really poke and prod and all that, uh, in ways I had not been able to just when we were, uh, talking about, you know, play development and steps to, that we were going to take to move forward and all that. 
So a uh, little bit of an anomaly for us, but I was thrilled to get her on. Um, oh, I did want to say this. In, during the show, really interesting, the rabbit holes that we go down. I'm like everybody, like just about everybody that's on the show. It always goes in a way I don't totally expect. This particular time, we ended up talking a lot more about the Holocaust um, than I had uh, thought or anticipated. And, um, you know, uh, at one point, uh, Deborah and I get into a discussion of anti-Semitism. And I talked about the idea of being a canary in a coal mine, uh, anti-Semitism being the canary in the coal mine before greater trouble emerges in a society, and um, therefore why anti-Semitism is so important to pay attention to. And I don't like what I said, so I'm going to caveat this right now so you guys hear it up front, um, because I... I, I kind of made a point that, like, you know, you can tell Polish jokes and nobody's anticipating the wipeout of Poland. But, you know, uh, anti-Semitism, you know, is a bit more of an indicator. And I really want to stipulate, because that's actually a sore point for me, uh, jokes in general I'm a big fan of. And I think nobody more than Mel Brooks or Woody Allen... <laughs> You know, have they certainly made their hay making self-deprecating jokes, um, and uh, you know, intent matters a lot in my in my view. But I wanted to make a point that I was not uh, advocating uh, censoring jokes uh, in the name of uh, protecting people's feelings, because um, that is something I I don't agree with. That said, I also agree two things being true at once: that anti-Semitism is always. Um, important to just note and keep an eye out for um, and be sensitive to because it rarely is far from the surface and it and I and it, I do believe it's the canary in the coal mine and Deborah brings up quite rightly that that's all well and good she's like but I'm the canary then uh, you know the Jewish people are the canary and that's not a great place to be and she's right uh, for my part I think what I did not articulate well enough is that the canary in the coal mine <laughs> metaphor is why it's important for everyone, not simply Jews, to pay attention to anti-Semitism because it is something that affects everyone, not simply Jewish people. And I did not make that point uh, very articulately when we were talking to Deborah. Um, obviously, Jewish people would feel anti-Semitism a lot more immediately than everyone else, but it is something that actually does affect everyone. And there's, you know, multiple historical examples of that sadly anyway okay so uh those i think are all the caveats that you guys need to know uh from me before we dive into the interview yeah and other than that i'm just glad deborah and i got to talk finally because i am a just huge fan of hers and um really excited to see what the future holds for her and for that matter for us and for the con before and for all the other projects but um yeah i just really think deborah's uh incredible writer and i'm glad she's getting some sunlight now and if we can have any role in that i'm even more grateful okay i'm christopher paul meyer i'm the artistic director at veterans repertory theater and this is the savage wonder of deborah yarchin This is it. This is the show, Deborah. Hi. Welcome. Thanks How for having you? me. Good. Sorry about the mix-up. 
so I didn't send Deborah the Zoom link in time, and I think it's because we've been talking so much. I was like, yeah, of course she has the Zoom link. Of course, we're talking all the time. <laughs> and then I was <laughs> all like, good. <laughs> um, so I'm not even going to ask how you are because we just talked last night. I know how you are, but I, uh, I guess we should just talk about next week to start with, right? Sure. By the time we talk, for us, it's next week, and for everyone listening, it's as they are listening. Because it's either then or it just happened a couple of days ago. So um, we can talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's really like getting on a, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. I'm so excited. <laughs> I know. This is going to be, I know. And especially because we really started trying to put this together September, October. When did we first start talking about bringing you out here? I, I think I think back then, I think there was like an idea of doing it earlier, but then it didn't make sense. So then right. we, we shifted to later. And you run into the holidays and all that stuff. So yeah, so it's been a couple months. It's been it's been a little bit of a process, but all in all, not too painful, right? No, it's it, it seems like it's it's going great. <laughs> yeah, I know. And now we're going to jinx it because we're talking about it on air. But no, <laughs> it, it, it's it has. It's been a lot, a lot of fun. So I guess let's let's start with some prognostications since now we're going to have the benefit of hindsight by the time everybody's listening to this. Um, what are you most excited for on Monday? I mean, hearing it with, again, hearing the play again, and with a, an amazing cast and working with a really exciting director who who clearly gets the play. Um, that's, I mean, the collaborative, collaborative side of theater is really like one of the most exciting parts. And and of course, there's the the nervousness and nerves that come with sharing anything with an audience, but also sharing it with an audience. That's also the best part. <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. And this will be the third time you've heard it out loud? I'm trying to think. I think maybe the fourth, actually, I'm okay. I, like thinking back, uh, well, it depends if you count like a living room reading that was right, organized right, right. in the very nascent early days of the play. Sure. When was the last time you heard it read out loud? Oh, I had a workshop of it through the Playwright Center last year, and that was a private opportunity where I had just a chance to really work on it with like two amazing actors and and a great director in the Twin Cities. That was last year, 2022? I, it's all, it's all a blur, but I think so. Okay. okay. All right. Wow. Okay. Um, it was right before I sent it to you, actually. So whenever the deadline for Oh, the, really? So maybe it was. So it must have been 21. Must have been yeah. 21 then. Okay. Right on. Yeah. I was going to say, because yeah, I was like, then we got a draft before all those changes, but I was like, I don't. No, you that, got the, you got the draft yeah, right yeah. after the changes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to get off topic for one second, just to ask you a really trivial question that you probably cannot answer where does come before stack up in all of your plays and i'm saying that not maybe not objectively but just emotionally for you is it is it one that you always kind of had dog-eared as like hey this is a really hot property i think or was it one that was like you know oh well yeah i also wrote this and you know it was you know i was just churning out plays and this happened to be one i mean where does it stand for you emotionally if you can I mean, even answer that really high emotional resonance specifically with this play. Um, I mean, it was coming out of a storm an internal storm of a lot of things. Uh, but in, as far as like knowing where a play stacks, I don't think anyone ever knows until, until something has traction and you just don't know what play that's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I could absolutely see that. I guess we should also, um, maybe I should, I should tee this up a little bit more. Um, Cause I know you and I have talked about it. So I kind of take it for granted tell everybody how you came up with the story and what the genesis of calm before was 
Oh boy. Uh, I, I remember it was back, it was way back when during Hurricane Harvey, it was before Hurricane Harvey made landfall and it was the night before and I was in Austin, Texas and I stepped outside of the backyard and I just smelled this like kind of metallic in, intense smell. And and I and it's a line in the play about how ozone gets pulled down into the downdraft before a storm that can create this sense of like animal level danger. Um, and I felt like for a moment, like I just smelled the play. Wow. And then wow. as torrential rain hit Austin over the next six days, um, and, and we didn't have like, of course, the brunt of it, like, I mean, the uh, close closer to the coast, sure. uh, we did end up with like somebody's like tree, tr- part of a tree on a roof, but it wasn't like, you know, that, that bad, but I, it's just the whole play just sort of whirled together in my mind. And there was a lot going on during that time, uh, on the larger things with our country that I was, I was, I was feeling upset about. There was a lot of, just a lot of fact things at the same time whirled together. A lot of plays I write they operate that way. This one, this one, it was really particularly strong. <laughs> what year was that? What year was Hurricane Harvey? I don't even know anymore. Was that 2017? See, I think I was 20... out of the country that whole time. So I like, for me, I like, I remember hearing about it, but I don't really have a good sense memory of like when exactly that was. So yeah, 2017. Okay. That would make sense. I think I, it was I... 2017. Okay. Do you, when you write generally, are you somebody that is motivated or instigated by current affairs and current events in order to write, or does it usually start with a something internal and then it kind of, and then the rest of it is all tertiary and kind of feeds on what the internal mechanism was. I think they're always in conversation with each other. Inevitably. Mm. I think Mm. they just ping off each other in ways that whirl, if that makes sense. So like, usually it's something very personal and then like that I'm feeling, and then it, ties together with something that like either fascinates or terrifies me about our current times or just the way our country is. And then it just merges. I could see that. Yeah, I could see that it's because I, I, and I'm not pretending I'm an expert on, on your work, but I have read four of your plays and I appreciate that very much. Thank you. No, it, listen, <laughs> le- legitimately. Um, it was a pleasure because man, reading 200 plus submissions every six months for that for last year, that was an ex- that was an exhausting thing. So when you find really good work um, that stands out, it, it really is a nice relief. And it was and what I was really amazed with was the level of research. It seems like that goes into each of your plays. Am I misreading that, or do you, I know Tectonic Melange? You obviously did a lot of research, and I know you talked about that. But it seems like like there's a verisimilitude in all of your plays, like Drive. Yeah, I was like, Jesus, she's looked into like new technology and she's looked into the trucking industry. Like there's, there's, you, you seem to have like worked hard to get a facility with the subject matter. Is that right? Is that something you look for to, to really immerse yourself in the world of the play and the nitty gritty of the details of these different industries? I think it depends on the play and some plays really necessitate it Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm not going to write a word of that play until I can hear the characters' voices. And I'm not going to, I just, I, I just, I don't think it's, I mean, it's okay to like, when a writer just wants to throw words on a page and create, I I feel like it has to be rooted in something that I believe in. Um, and so in, in those particular plays, I had to talk to people from the the backgrounds of the characters I was writing because they didn't share my own personal experiences. So I'll like, it might've started in a more personal place or a curiosity. I had to fulfill the play by actually talking to people 
Um, and so, yeah, research, uh, glorious rabbit holes, <laughs> the yeah. best places. Yeah. Uh, I, I enjoy the heck out of it too. And also like a lot of times those plays, um, I'm, I have an idea and then it's, it's my mind pinging and spinning characters and stories out of the image and details that I learned through the research too. So it's almost like it create itself generates through the research. Do you have to hear the characters' voices in your head to write them, or can you fudge it sometimes? I have to hear them. Like I can, I can fudge it, but it, if it doesn't feel true, it's not. I'm not going to write that play. And also, interestingly, I almost have to know the whole play before I can write it. So it's, um, I can write bits and pieces as I'm researching, and I think that's part of the process. Like I'm starting to hear it, so I'm starting to maybe draft a monologue, draft a bit, maybe a dialogue. Uh, but until I know the full play. Um, I usually don't start what I call the writing process formally, although I guess it's all writing, right? <laughs> well, I guess that, but that's that I've never heard it put quite that way. Do you, do you then go through an outline in order to know the whole play or is it just in your head that you kind of have a general sense of the ebb and flow of the play? A mix of both. It depends on the play. Like if it is more plot driven, I think for a tectonic launch, I went through iterations of outlines until I got how everything lined up. It made sense. Okay. When, when do you have to, I don't know, eavesdrop or get sort of experiential to hear the voices? How much of that can you learn through research? Uh, or is it something now with YouTube that you can kind of go, yeah, sure. I can go hear geologists talk and like, well, what do you, what, what step, what techniques do you like to use? And, and how hard is that sometimes to do if it really is far afield from your day-to-day -day life? It's not that hard. Like, I mean, there's a little, you have to get over a little social anxiety, right? But I've, I've actually cold called like a geologist or two during the, during some of the tectonic longs research process or wrote an email, like introducing myself and saying, I'm a playwright working on a fictional story and always prefacing it by fictional, mm. because I think I'm not, I want, I want, and even when I'm talking to people in person, it has to be really clear. I'm not a journalist. Um, and I think that also opens up more of what they're willing to talk about because um, they understand it's going through a fictional filter. Um, and, and, uh, people also really love to talk and tell their story and not like, a lot of the people in the characters I write, nobody's asking them. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And then, but then if they're talking to you, do you internalize kind of their rhythm, their cadence, how they talk, the syntax, do you need them to talk to others in the field? Do you need to be, do you need to have it replicate any sort of apples to apples comparison with the two characters that will be talking, or is it enough for you just to hear? that one person i just have to hear the character okay or it just and usually it's an amalgamation of voices that turn into the character if that makes sense so it's like yeah i'm definitely listening especially if it's more regional to to the the rhythm of the dialogue or not dialogue but what they're saying um <laughs> uh and and how they speak and and i'm i'm noting uh specific words that are really like oh that's interesting i would only hear yeah. that like you know the difference between soda versus pop like everything yeah 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 <laughs> Well, it's funny because when I read Tectonic Melange, the one of my favorite dialogue, I don't know, epiphanies came to me in the Dakotas when many, many, well, not many, many, two decades ago when I was an actor and I was on a national tour and we were in the Dakotas, we were driving through the Dakotas and we stopped at a diner and I will never forget the two guys wearing hunter hats, puffy vests, really older guys just sitting at a diner, um, just casual conversation. And I, w I was walking past them or something, and one of them said to the other, well, uh, something about the Israelites. And he was referencing the paper, and he was talking about Jews in Israel, 
which makes sense. And he wasn't using it as a slur or a derogatory comment. He was just talking factually about it. And I was like, who calls them Israelites anymore? Like I, I never would have thought of that. And the fact that that was the word choice he used, I was like, that's the beauty of immersing yourself in the world. You only are going to get tidbits like that, you know, being around that. But uh, anyway, that was, that was, so when I was reading TikTok launch, I was like, I, it was, it, that part tickled me to like see a play set there. Cause I was like, there are some interesting turns of phrase and especially with the couple and the way that they dialogue. And I was like that there's just rich fodder. That's stuff that's so uncovered, you know, or undercovered. And uh, yeah, that was just a delight to read. I mean, I had for that. I did, I probably did the most immersive research I've ever done in my life for that play. I actually went to North Dakota and I like borrowed a rancher's beat up car and drove across the oil patch and talked to people in towns with like 120 to 750 people and just like had to hear it them speak and get to know who I'm writing about. Cause I, I'm not from North Dakota. I've lived in the Midwest a number of years at that point, but it's such a different place. And yeah, uh, yeah that was uh, and such an adventure. I'll never forget. And it's in so much like echoes in other plays from what I got out of that experience of middle America and like being a part of it, like in that moment and like really just sitting down at bars and talking to people or going to the bar that everyone told me not to go into and like getting the best stuff. <laughs> What was that like? What was that like for you going into the bar? I mean, I I don't know what I was thinking. Everyone was like, don't go into that one bar. And like, there was someone like literally sleeping in their car outside of it. This was during the like height of the boom. Um, and so like people were just all over the place from different parts of the country. And I just wanted to see like, well, who, who, who are like, you're going to meet the people in the town who are the locals, but who are the people coming from all over and who's right. the local who has to deal with that? And it was this amazing woman bartender. And she just had this place under control. Wow. And it was remarkable to see that. And there was even like a game they were playing that like worked its way into drive that, you know, uh, the dice game in that play that, but it, it's funny how different bars in the Midwest, like entered other Midwest plays. <laughs> how did you find uh, for lack of a better phrase, the infiltration process? Uh, I mean, when, when you would go to a bar or when you're going into these small towns, what was your process for striking up conversations? Was it just sitting at a bar, sitting at a counter and talking to people? Was it eavesdropping? what was your infiltration process like to absorb yourself into that world? I just played off the environment. So in the case of that particular bar, I didn't announce myself as a playwright. I just sat down and had a drink and like listened in and like got to know the bartender a little and like just chatting and, and asking questions just in general. It wasn't, it wasn't intrusive. It was just like, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and just feeling out the environment and the space. But in a lot of cases, like there was a bar and like it was Den Center, maybe uh, I sat down and I, I I did introduce myself and I said, I'm a playwright and I'm working on a play about, you know, North Dakota in this particular uh, area. And I'd love to hear about your experiences and if you're willing to chat. And of course, a lot of them really, really were. And one was like, hey, come in here. Like, this guy without sound, it was the mayor of the town. And he was like, I'll buy you a drink. And I was like, I might have to drive. Thank you, though. <laughs> That's crazy. What did you find that was valuable? Is that was that more valuable to announce yourself to them like that? Because now we're, we're not talking about subject matter experts in a certain professional field, but now it's just you know people going, oh, hey, so, someone is here stating that they're a voyeur to come watch our lives and look at our lives. Did that? I, I'm assuming it was a pretty positive experience, though that that it really didn't. It was, it, there was no downside to doing that. There was no downside. They invited me in. There's one woman who's like, "Hey, come on inside. Let's have let's have a chat." 
Um, and like little things that they would say, like made their way into the characters, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like absolutely. there's a moment where I think Liz is very much rooted in this one woman who's like, let me tell you about my life. People just really want to run a talk. And of course she's not specifically that woman. There's so many other, you know, people I, whose voices like, were, you know, amalgamated essentially into her. Um, did you have to do a lot of note-taking to remember turns of phrase or, or anything like that? Or was it all just. You're just trusting your subconscious to remember whatever you need when it comes I jotted, to writing. I jotted things down, like, and, and they understood. I had a notepad there, you know, and that's when, when I particularly had to define myself and, and and confirm multiple times I was not a journalist during this time because there was a lot of journalists poking around for a story since it was it was quite a story at the time. So, I, I want to back up and take a thirty thousand foot view for a second of you and your career because. I think I find you to be a very, and I'm I'm using this word in a complimentary way, aggressive playwright. Like you are, you are passionate about what you do. You are ch- constantly working on stuff. You're not passive. You're not sitting back waiting on anything, and you're constantly seeking out other stories. It seems like to me, it seems like there's the motor is constantly revving, and you're looking for opportunities. And then when you tell me that you're going, I'm assuming on your own nickel speculatively to go to North Dakota to suss out the environment, to really immerse yourself in it. That's a very ambitious, aggressive move and it pays dividends. Why? I guess is my short question. What drives you to tell these stories in this medium and at this time and in a way where you're not willing to sit and wait and go, uh, you know, I'm waiting for somebody to finance me. I'm waiting to, you know, I'll just tell stories about my normal pattern of life. What drives you to go and have this adventurous, ambitious take on your craft? I mean, probably curiosity that in yeah. in, in lack of control over one's curiosity. I, I, but I, I, to be clear, for for Tectonic Lunch, I actually had some funding I, through the Sloan Foundation at the time. Oh, awesome! Uh, so there was oh, yeah. it was like I had a deadline, so that also helped. And I think that's actually and you say much drive. Like I I sometimes I will apply for these opportunities so that I have to write the play. Because in those particular mm-hmm. cases, when it's not spinning, like ter- uh, the combo four, like no one, no one, you know, there was no deadline on that right, one. Right. That play just had to be written. But like certain ones that are like a lot more involved in the research and and require that level of immersion, like it really helps to have a deadline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that, that I could absolutely see that. What was the first play you ever wrote? Oh, my gosh. Uh, this was back in the seventh grade. And I had just like, I had loved writing for all my entire life, but I hadn't really find a, found a medium that clicked, if that makes sense. Um, and mm-hmm. I overheard my theater director, middle school theater director, was, uh, t- talking to some kid's mom and she's like, my son writes plays. And it hit my ear because I was, I was in love with the theater. I was in love with writing and it just didn't occur to me. You could put the two together and you didn't have to be Shakespeare. So it's like, no one like gave me permission, but I was like, yes. I will write a play. So I went, I went home and I wrote a play that weekend uh, called, this is like kind of embarrassing. It was called children of the seas. And it was about kids who had died on the Titanic. Cause of course the time when I was a kid, it was like Titanic was really like a big part of the culture. And, and that movie had uh, come out around that time. Uh, and uh, they were had to tell the stories of their deaths in order to move on with their lives and, or the part of their lives they never got to live. And like, I think at the time I personally had a story I needed to tell and I didn't know, I, I didn't have any words and it took a long time in my life to ever find them. Uh, so writing about kids who had a story they had to tell to move on uh, was probably really resonating from that. 
<laughs> you say that you loved theater when you when you heard that when you overheard that comment. You you loved theater and put the writing together. Why did you love theater? How were you first exposed to theater? Where did that love come from? I was really lucky that in the fifth grade, somebody's, uh, I think it was at a sleepover. They used to in Austin have this, uh, the they probably still do the Zilker Hillside musical. And uh, someone took me to see it with uh, my friend. And I remember sitting there and like watching it with my whole body. I mean, this is probably like, it didn't matter what it was. It was a production of Guys and Dolls. It was just the, the medium itself. And like, just experiencing it the same way that I experienced almost in some ways like synagogue, if that makes sense. But it wasn't about God. It was about humanity, even though it's like guys and dolls. It was, it was just something different that I was like, that really like clicked in that moment. And, and that I just, you know, every aspect of the theater tells the story, every dimension. And then there's the additional dimension of the audience. Uh, Something about that. Yeah. It resonated with you when you wrote uh, children of the seas, then what happened with it? Did you do anything with it? Did it, you get a couple of friends together to even read it? Did it ever get read out loud? No, I had no idea you were supposed to do that. Actually. I don't, I didn't put two and two fully together <laughs> about like, Oh, right. They're meant to be performed. That's what you love about it. Uh, I had somebody who had access to a printer hit print for me and I held it in my hands and I looked at it and felt really proud. And then I wrote the next one. <laughs> wow. So did you ever share it with anybody? Did ever, anybody ever read it? I don't remember. I mean, I wish I had, there was a lot of competitions that I learned about years later. Like maybe if I knew about them at the time, I would have submitted them. I didn't know that was a thing you could do until I was in high school. Okay. And then I'd written different plays that I think were a little like more. (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Did it become a recurring thing for you that, okay, I'm done with that one. I'm going to go write another one. Or yeah. was there, were there years in between or was it? No, I was process? off to the races with it from that point forward. And it was like for a while, kind of a secret thing I did. It was like this, this thing I had that I could, that I, that I was exploring and, and ex- just enjoying. Um, and then I, you know, had found a friend and uh, I think I was in the ninth grade and she was in the eighth grade or, or I don't know when we intersected, uh, but she, she also wrote plays. And so at sleepovers, we started writing a, a play together and then it was just like the thing that you did. It was, it was but I think it's also an extension of, of play in itself, right? Like I was, I grew up in like, by the time we we're in Texas, I was running around in fields with all these like games of make believe with friends and it's like theater and playwriting. It's a life game of make believe and everybody's just playing together. So. Well, that's what I was going to say. Did, did it become communal? Did it, did, when did theater become communal for you? I mean, when did you feel comfortable sharing it in a way that your words actually were being spoken by somebody else and you know, it's really coming to life. When did that happen? Probably. So my friend and I wrote this play and uh, we, we based it on our, another friend of ours, whose, whose brother has autism and about their relationship. And so I think it was like also my first immersive research too, because I was like interviewing her and like learning about her experience. And we submitted it to this competition through the Kennedy Center. And we're really lucky. Like we, we, we were one of the winners and they flew us up to DC. So the first time I ever heard my work read was at the Kennedy Center when I was like, at that point, I think in the 10th grade. And that was like, oh, right. This is, this is incredible. You're supposed to hear them performed. <laughs> what did you think hearing it? performed I'm not not to mention at the Kennedy Center but what did you think sitting there and actually hearing your words on stage it was it was more of a reading so it was like it wasn't the full full dimensions but I remember sure. being like right the the response of the audience felt really important it wasn't the same level of nerves because I had a friend with me 
and it was ours. It wasn't mine. It was, it was, it was shared. Um, it, it was, I think the moment that really, like it really hit home was I had entered a competition that was statewide with a different play that I wrote was spinning from a lot more personal places and, uh, it, you know, completely fictional. It didn't, it wasn't like, there wasn't a lot of correlatives obvious mm-hmm. that, that were in it, uh, but it still came from a very personal place. And I it had a, my high school as part of the award was had funding to perform it. And then all of a sudden I was in this, like at the Texas educational theater association conference, like in a ballroom that had been converted into a theater full of seats. And I just like, I think I thought, okay, five people will come, but for some reason, maybe it lined up right in the conference schedule, the doors open and it's like, cavalcade just like entered of all and it, all of the seats filled and i don't i don't remember any moment in my life i've ever been more terrified <laughs> um really right because like, i was like they're speaking the word but it was how i was i was in, like surrounded by these people responding and like sometimes really really leaning forward and then moments you know of course the program shuffled and it was just like this heightened moment in my life <laughs> were you standing the whole time no i was sitting it was were all you? Oh, I was, wow. And then, I mean, yeah. but people were crying at the end and I was like, oh my God, I feel like an insane puppeteer. This is, <laughs> but that's kind of cool too, right? Yeah. And then I, I mean, I was already hooked, but I was, I was really hooked from there it, it, despite the adrenaline, despite how, how really intense that was. Um, Do you write every day? No, I tried. I wish I could. Sometimes when I'm writing a play, I will write every day. Like when I'm really in the thick of the writing process, like it's, it just happens, but like, it's really hard to. Um, and I, in fact, I feel uh, my next play, I have to write it soon because like since pre COVID, I really, I I don't have a new play that I've written and that feels like weird. <laughs> Why is that? I think I had a backlog. And so I was focused on opportunities for scripts that needed revision. Mm. So of course, I've been, I mean, that counts as writing. That is writing. I'm just talking about like a new play writing. Yep. yep. Um, but so in, in certain cases, when there's a deadline, yeah, I'll write every day. Um, yeah, sure, and I'll sure. try to, and I have moments in my life that are, uh, that allow for that, if that makes sense. Like if I can integrate it in my schedule, I'll try to be like, I will write for three hours this day. And then maybe I write for one and feel like, I still feel like a winner. <laughs> right. Right. This is kind of a weird question, but what gets you high as a writer? What is the climactic moment for you in the process? Is it really when it hits the stage and you hear actors saying it? Is it when you hear the applause after? Is it just finishing the script? I mean, what is it that, um, yeah, what's the climactic moment for you? That's that a really you good question. I feel like there's multiple climactic moments in, in the process, and it just depends on, on on the play. Of course, it's it's the sharing. It's the response. Uh, but it's also when you're writing in it, it, writing the play, and you find yourself getting emotional. Uh, yeah. And you're like, oh, and I mean, you hope that's shared. You hope that others have that experience too. But but having that that moment of like feeling your own work is is valuable too. I'm I'm really fascinated. I I, I don't want to gloss over how early you started writing plays and how prolifically you wrote plays at a young age. And I'm trying to think of a, the best way to kind of explore that. So I want to just kind of start off with where were you? Where were you born? Where were you raised? Was it all in Austin? No, it, I had a very Air Force upbringing. Uh, speaking of like the whole, uh, you know, premise of your theater. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I, maybe some of it is rooted in in that sort of wanderlust. Uh, but like <laughs> I, we started in New Jersey and my dad was, he spent 20 years in the Air Force and he retired when I was in the third grade. So, okay. uh, but that early part, he was, I don't remember 
New Jersey in his him his Air Force life as much. I do. It's like relics of that time and in, in the hodgepodge of things that he picked up around the world and brought back. He was a navigator. Um, and then we ended up on, it was my parents' second tour, but my first one by the time I entered kindergarten. So the, I started kindergarten in Germany. Um, okay. And Where? Lived Where in Germany? At Ramstein Air Force Base, but we lived in Kaiserslautern. And we didn't actually live on the base, which I thought was actually smart on my parents' end because we had a, a much more, uh, I think, cultural experience that way. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And how long were you there for? Kindergarten, first grade, and second grade. So about okay. three years. But that that is a very vivid time in my life. And I was really, really fortunate. My parents were were so cool. They like took us all around Europe and like there was they had three little kids, like really little kids. And like in their previa, we were in like we went to the Alps. We went, we were uh Ramstein is about six hours from Paris, if I think correctly. I've been on the yeah. Eiffel Tower more times than most people. And they took us to the Louvre. I mean, like we got to see the world and, or at least that part of Europe um, and props to them. Cause I can't, I'm like looking at like the projection of like, what do we need to have kids at one point? And, and the idea of traveling and it's like, they did that with three little kids. Wow. <laughs> Good were for you, them. Were the, you the oldest, the middle, the youngest middle child, middle child. Okay. So for you, what, what were some of the big takeaways while you were traveling? Was it just the foreignness of everything or was it the historical impact the art that you were seeing the landscapes what what was your biggest takeaway from your time in europe i think it was just the general adventure of it the way that mm. so many things would you get to see so many different things and then it would it would change but feel like comfortable and home at the same time um yeah. and I guess like, I mean, honestly, at that point, because I, I remember most of Europe by its playgrounds, <laughs> but I also, I remember Neuschwanstein and it really, what a cool thing. You don't get to watch, just have to, you don't get to, just, you know, some kids, they see castles on, you know, Disney movies in Disney movies. I got to walk inside of one and it was the one that the Disney castle I think is based on. And yeah, yeah. that is so cool. And like, I was really into imagination games and would like search for secret passageways in friends' homes. And I think I actually found one at one point. Like there was just, it was a really cool time. Did you make German friends or were you just, it was all just military kids? That you got it's mostly know? military. I think I had one German kid and we tried to speak to each other, but I didn't really know much German and she didn't know much English. Yeah. Um, so it was like two, two kids who didn't speak the same language trying to play Barbies. <laughs> yeah. That could be frustrating. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> What, what did you find? Um, how did you find the military school system? Was it, it was it alienating to move around? Did you feel comfortable that everybody's kind of transient, or, or did you make great friends there? What was that experience like for you? I didn't think twice about it in any sort of like way because I didn't know better. But like yeah. I found it really great. I actually think that my the root of my writing is is the good fortune of having this awesome first grade teacher. Uh, who, so we, she had this uh, assignment where we had, we would write a story. And it's the first time I'd ever been asked to write a story about our weekend. Well, that weekend, uh, I had, my, my brother had been playing with a pair of scissors and I had grabbed them out of his hand and he had somehow, he was a little baby, managed to close it around my thumb. And as so I had my, my thumb was sliced in half and there's blood gushing everywhere. And, uh, I had come into class with like my, my thumb, like, you know, with all these stitches and so I wrote a, a short story called Cuts with Scissors. <laughs> and I think I managed to employ irony and humor in it somehow because she started treating me differently after that. And I just, I kind of had this like, no, like I knew for the first time, like, oh, I'm a writer. I didn't know what that meant, but it was that first grade teacher with that assignment and at the defense of, uh, what is it? Dodd's yeah. school. Yeah. 
Department of Defense schools. So did your parents, when did your parents twig to the fact that you were a writer? Probably when I like won that first competition. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think my mom probably had an inkling, but I didn't, I don't, I, I think I, it was, it wasn't like a part of the household or, or something that I talked about. I don't, I don't recall. Were your parents creative? They're, they're, they're very smart, but I don't, I don't, ni- they're neither of them like specifically creators. My mom, my mom is a nurse after my dad retired. Um, I think, well, my dad studied communications and he's really a, a very smart guy. I mean, he was on Jeopardy at one point, like, uh, but, and really? I wish, I wish wow. he would write something. I would love to read it. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm the writer in the, in the media, uh, family. I know I have an aunt who also, uh, writes sometimes too. So that must be in the blood too. Okay. So after, um, Germany, where did you guys end up going? Did he retire uh, after Germany? Was that the last did. duty station? Okay. Yeah. And, where and, did you, and then you moved to Austin. We moved to Round Rock first and then Austin. Uh, he had Bergstrom Airport used to be an Air Force base, actually. And so like before we moved to Germany, he had visited us. He had taken us to the Austin to check it out because he'd been hearing good things about it. So I think Austin always vibed right as as where he wanted to end up. So he he moved us to Austin by choice. And how was Austin for you? It was it was really great in its own way. I I did feel a little bit starting with Round Rock that we had crashed into a cactus, if that makes sense. When we hit Texas, like things things weren't the same, and maybe it's because it's like life on the constant go as a kid, and then you settle. Or maybe it was just getting older and and kids growing up. But something did feel like it shifted, and so like there was a bit of a rough patch. I felt starting around like the time I started writing plays through high school. Um, and I think maybe that propelled some of my writing. I, I do think that maybe like the greatest exercise as a writer is trying to understand the things around you and what's yeah. happening and why, and the motivations of people. And at times, um, I do I, like specifically in the seventh grade, there was like, a, I forget what part in middle school, but I, I did brush up against a little bit of anti-Semitism in Texas, uh, which I didn't expect. Uh, but it was there and it was one, one bully specifically, I wish I'd reported him, but I, I accidentally took the high road by being afraid to speak up. <laughs> um, how did that happen? How did, how did the antisemitism crop up? What, um, it's the kind of thing that, I mean, I'm a New Yorker, so, you know, for me, I'm kind of just used to everybody being different. So I guess sometimes I'm kind of blind to how it is when people are called out for being different. What was, was so it? Like, how would people even? How would it, does the name Yarchin automatically make people go? Oh, they must be Jews, and let's we do something with. It. Like how did how did that even become an issue? It was so grossly intentional. Um, like I, I don't know if I talked about this much, but like he. So we were studying the Holocaust, so it was a part of the conversation, and the fact that I was Jewish, of course, was very relevant to that in the conversation. So like okay. I was one of the two Jews in my at, at that. I know I know it was probably reflected demographically similarly in my middle school, but in my graduating class. In high school, there was 650 students and there were two two Jewish students. Sure. In so like there were not, you know, many right. of us. Uh, and he just hooked into it as like a maybe it wasn't coming out of like necess- you know, like him being a Nazi necessarily or wanting to no, be aspiring right, right. to be, but like it, maybe it was like the thing to to poke at. But like given given the the seriousness of what we were talking about, like he said, I wish I was a Nazi so I could kill you. Like he was very, very like shit. that is like some shit. Like, why? Um God. And that was seventh grade ish. Yeah, yeah, that was either the seventh or the eighth grade. But oh, there was God. there was echoes of it too. Like even at the a bus stop, like it would come up with conversation. I wasn't 
I wasn't shy about being Jewish. It was, I thought it was really cool. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. right. And, and this one uh, little girl was like, Oh, but you know, the Jews killed Jesus. Right. <laughs> like there was a very, you yeah. know, obvious Texas Christian right. mentality. And I don't think she knew better. I think she was just trying to point it out. <laughs> well, what's hilarious is that you just come from Germany where if it should have been sensitive, like that would have been, you know, you would think that'd be, <laughs> that'd be a dicier it, it was thing such an there. interesting yeah. choice to be in Germany and not choice it just happened but like you know my my grandparents were actually holocaust survivors uh wow. so so to be in Germany it didn't even like I mean they took us to a couple memorials um and yeah it was it was my brother actually he's in the military he ended up in Germany too for a spell what what was that like for you guys especially at a young age being Jewish going to see, you know, having grandparents that were in the Holocaust and survived the Holocaust and, and being in Germany, did that resonate at all? Do you think that left an imprint? Did it, did it have any traction or was it, were you too young to fully get the impact of it? Or just, what was that like? I got the impact of it later because I was too young to really know this, the history okay. at the time. Uh, it's interesting how much you're, you're naive about, like, even when we were in, in Germany, like I was in my elementary school, got evacuated a few times. Uh, and I didn't know until I was like, oh, we're going home early for school. La, 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 la. You had learned years later is because there'd been bomb threats. Where was in, in, this was in Germany. This is in Ramstein. Like there's a lot of people who were in Germany who were not happy about the military presence, the American military presence, but I had no idea. (laughs) Sure, 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 sure. Um, were you guys religious? You talked about going to synagogue. Was was it a big part of your life? It was a big part of my life, but we were not, it was, it's interesting because my dad was, he actually, when he grew up, his, his dad sent him to a yeshiva. Wow. Uh, I feel like him joining the air force is a way of almost like finding his own, uh, like instead of becoming a rabbi or something. Uh, and he, yeah, so he raised, he would, he would at some point, and we would, even in, in Germany, like there was uh, more conservative than reform synagogues. Like that was more conservative roots, I think, on his side. But he raised us reform, which means it's like a more liberal form of Judaism, essentially. Um, it's, it's, it's like much, much less rigid. Sure. Um, and we, we went to synagogue regularly and I had a bat mitzvah. It was, it was a part of like the culture of my household and, and, and what he wanted for us. And I'm glad he did. I, I do feel like Jewish values like resonate in my life. Do they? Um, and yeah. I'm glad I had that. It's 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 like, you know, a great, a great, like, like repairing the earth is such a huge part. Like they call it tikkun olam. And there's so many positive Jewish values that just like, I don't know, echo, echo across my life um, in, in great ways. Uh, but we were not like deeply religious. Well, it's interesting because um, have you written about? Judaism in any way, shape, or form in your plays? Because I, I don't remember it in any of the plays I've read. <laughs> I didn't send any of the plays that are, but it's actually a weirdly like a, a big part of my career too. Um, yeah. There's this whole like facet of my uh, playwriting that does involve Jewish identity. And I've, I've worked with a lot of uh, Jewish theater organizations and and a couple projects that are very, very <laughs> uh, rooted in Judaism and, and Jewish culture. Tell me about that. What what does that mean to you? Um, I mean, I, I and I, I say this <laughs> acknowledging that I am not Jewish, but I always feel as a New Yorker that we're kind of Jewish by osmosis because it's like, <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm, yeah, I'm from the city. It's, it's like, you know, that you kind of adopt a, a lot of at least the verbiage or at least some of the attitudes of, of you know, external attitudes. But what does it talk about that for a second? What does that mean 
um, for you to be Jewish, and especially as you explored it in your writing. Why was it important for you to explore, and what was what did you find? Was it that through exploring the group identity, you could identify yourself better, or was there other themes and other fascinations about it for you? I think it's just because it's a part of my background, and that all automatically filters into everything you do as you're in, in your life. Um, I, I did think about it because I was asked about it at one point. I had to write something about it, and mm. uh, I, I don't. It was it was an interesting thing to grapple with. I, I I wonder if a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm not particularly religious, but I still want to honor my grandparents. So, like writing about it becomes a form of honoring them artistically, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, but there's also like a part of Judaism that's very like I think of it as like Talmudic thinking and which mm-hmm. is like you question you it's, it's all about questioning everything and there's no like bow or ribbon right like you don't tie it together and have an answer you keep questioning it so like my plays don't end on like a pat note if that makes sense there's always it should feel like you're left with more questions like not in the plot necessarily but like I want to leave people with more questions and they're and that they keep recon- reconciling with and thinking about I, I I don't feel again. It's another issue I should not just gloss past or fly past. To talk about your grandparents, I mean, I have to imagine that at some point you sat down with them and talked to them about the Holocaust and about the experience of surviving it, or was it just kind of acknowledged in the family? You never even had to talk about it. I mean, what was that? What was the impact of having them you be your grandparents and having lived through that? I think it was the lack of talking about it. That wow. was more effective and 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 really hits me on the heart highest level because the, that left a, a con, ongoing mystery. Uh, and I did talk to my grandfather about it. He actually visited us in Texas right after my grandmother died, and he had never really talked about it. There were like a few details that he had mentioned. Uh, he was actually he survived by escaping through the Red Army, so he wow. himself was a soldier. He fought in the Red Army. In the Red Army. And my oh. my grandpa on my mom's side actually was fought on the American side. And has purple heart. Uh, like it's it's like very it's interesting that that war. Um, and uh, yeah, but it was more about what he didn't say and how how it felt like that silence echoed through the family and 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 left uh, like not whole maybe holes. I mean, like, but I've I'm I probably my next play is very much rooted in in wanting to about wanting to know the history where history can't be found, but I actually made some really cool discoveries just the past like year by, by finding relatives that I, and, and connecting with relatives that I didn't even know I had. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I reconnected with a, a cousin in Israel who'd been with my grandmother on my dad's side during the war. He had been a baby. So he had to pick up the story secondhand, but like, I actually got more details than I've ever, ever had. And I know that they, my grandmother, all we knew that she had ever talked about that I heard from uh, my aunt was that, you know, the woods were, they, they were in the woods and she was a, a midwife, which never, that, that those two things don't really computer connect. They'd, ex- but I think as I understand it, the story is they escaped through the woods. They lived in the woods for a period of time as they made their way into Soviet Russia. Um, and that's where 80% of the Jews who survived in Eastern Europe, apparently sure. they survived because they made it. And that's a story that hasn't really been talked about in the media much. I think it will be sooner. I think a lot of people who are third generation like myself will are asking all the questions and trying to find the answers. Um, and so that I think will be a part of the conversation more. Um, but I'm really fascinated by that um, and want to tell that story too. Uh, but more about the what that what the holes are and that experience of the holes. I can't I can't be the only one who has that in my history. I'm sure a lot of people from different backgrounds share that. I'm completely spitballing here. So you can tell me if I'm way off base. 
do you think there's also a certain fascination with it because you were in Texas and you were raised in Texas where you're one of two Jews in your graduating class or whatever, that's like, hey, who the hell are, are my people? Because I know there's a lot more of us than just the two of us here. Is there something to that? And do you think you'd have had the same interest in it if, say, for example, you'd been raised in New York City and it was like, oh, yeah, right. You know, half my graduating class was Jewish or something like that. Would, would that have been different? Or do you think this would always have been a fascination? I think I would have been more in conversation with others about it in a way that mm-hmm. would have been maybe helpful. Maybe I would have felt more subtle, but I don't know if that's true either. I'm, I'm mm. sure they had just as many questions. I think it's a common experience that the, our grandparents didn't talk about it. Um, and I also, I also had some, some experience with other Jews. It's just, they didn't go to my school <laughs> to uh, a right, different right, part right. of town. Right, right. Sure. <laughs> what, um, I, this is, this is kind of an obvious question, but I think it, it probably is worth asking. Why do you think you talked about third generation Jews that look back on the Holocaust and it might be the ones to capture stories that maybe have been lost. Why do you think that is, why does it remain an enduring fascination and necessity especially that the three generations removed there there's still the drive to find those stories because i'm trying to think of three generations removed I, I can't think of a group of people that maybe are still fascinated with a common story three generations removed is it just because of the magnitude of the holocaust or what do you think the the driving forces the driving incentive is to dig deeper and find more stories and, and understand the threads more? Or is it, and I hate to say this, is it because there's always the possibility of a recurrence? Is it, it, There's kind of a necessity to understand the root causes and the way that that all dev out. Yeah, I think, I mean, it affected us. Like it was a huge part of our lineage. It was like, we have holes in our, our family lines. Like there was, there was yeah. murdered relatives that we never got to know. Uh, and there was, it certainly affected, I, I'm sure a lot of dynamics in different households to have gone through that level of trauma and that echoes through generations. Uh, it also like anti-Semitism d- didn't disappear. It, it keeps rearing its head and it still feels very, very real and very, very scary. And also at the same time, there's like, I can't believe there's Holocaust deniers, but there are. Yeah. And like, obviously, and like, that feels like that's be- as, as our, you know, grandparents and, and, and people of that generation are dying off. It's like, there's not a lot left to, to root it in, in reality for some people. Like, so the more it's told, I, I do think that there is a, quite a lot of the story told. Uh, I just think there's also other aspects that haven't been told Yeah, uh, yeah. that are, that are still resonant. And it's like, it's still an unfolding story in a way. From what has been not told that makes a lot of sense i and i think and we don't have to go down this rabbit hole all the way if you don't want to um but i i just want to throw it out there because we're talking about it i've always felt that anti-semitism is the canary in the coal mine and that's not my language somebody much smarter than me once said that but that anti-semitism is the canary in the coal mine of greater problems to come that if you're starting to see anti-semitism mm-hmm. there's a lot worse things come and knocking soon thereafter. And that's why it's so important to note anti-Semitism and stamp it out early on because it historically it you you know it's a harbinger of a lot worse things to come. Do you feel that? Does that make sense to you? Does that resonate with you? Do you see it differently? I see it differently in the sense that 
it is not a canary in the coal mine. I feel like the canary in the coal mine, <laughs> uh, if that makes sense. In that, no, in that 100%. Context. Well, <laughs> I, I, and I guess I, guess I, I, sh- I should say, yeah, even just um, that, yes, that it is, yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, and I guess it's, it's uh, I guess, the, what, what, what's the better way of delineating that? Giving voice to anti-Semitism presages physical the phys- the the oh, physical oh, you the mean violence like the, and all that, that. Level of the, the, the the harbinger yeah. it's a, it's a hard it, it doesn't yeah, it doesn't stay with just with just you know it, it's not I mean, for lack of a better word it's not a Polish joke you know Polish joke doesn't necessarily right. mean there's gonna be dead poles in the street but Jewish jokes tend to that, that it doesn't tend to stay there it tends to go further and it tends to be a pretty good indicator that there might be some real poison coming to the surface soon yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. When when someone can make a, a joke about something, it becomes, even though like ha ha funny and like we should be able to laugh at certain things, sure. Uh it in certain amounts of certain jokes in, in aimed in like less kind ways. Like that that does certainly uh to me dehumanize and, and lead to people being dehumanized. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the well, possibility of greater violence. Yeah. And uh, and let, let me say this as somebody that does appreciate a good joke uh, about anybody and is a huge Mel Brooks fan. I mean, certainly Lord knows, um, you know, you know, I, I, I get the value of jokes, but yeah, that, but definitely the, the antipathy, the voiced antipathy against, against Jews, I think is a, is a sign of a real sickness, um, that can yeah. sometimes emerge. Um, anyway, I just, that's where that went. That thought took me. We don't have to go I would that agree much further that. than that. Yeah. I, I would yeah, absolutely yeah. agree with that. That, that is. <laughs> yeah. yeah truly it, scary. And, and true and scary and 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 sadly always relevant. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those things that doesn't seem to be dated. It, it never. It always seems like it's a evergreen subject um, because there's always new iterations and there's always new ways that that seems to get approached and and, and raised as a subject. Just my opinion, but uh, if you have thoughts on that, but that's that that's where that all leads me because um, I I do think that's something. Let's. I didn't want to leave you in Austin uh, without seeing where you went to next. After high school, did you go to college right away? Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, if anything, my parents had a very like hands off in a in a in a, in a somewhat useful way at, to becoming a writer, at least yeah. uh, approach to everything. Uh, I feel like my dad has a live long and prosper Spock like uh, way of things, and and so when I said I wanted to be a writer, they were like, cool. And I had obviously, I think it probably helped that I, I, I showed a little promise in it, like young. So like yeah. the fact that I had like tangible proof of, of it, of the fact that I, I let's see where this goes. Uh, so I, I focused on that in undergrad in part, uh, and then, and, and decided to go to the East coast, uh, because at Drexel university in Philadelphia, sure. they had okay. a screenwriting and playwriting program. And I liked the idea that it, it had both. And also like a very, uh, they would send you into the the field for like part of your education through like, it was, I forget they, a co-op, they called it a co-op. It was it, like a three month, uh, two different, I did two different three months opportunities and people would do six months during that time. Um, I was drawn to that. And also where'd you go? Being, Where, where'd you, sorry, where'd you spend those three months then when it was a co-op? I split it into two because I had an opportunity in New York city when I was young through uh, this competition, the young playwrights uh, festival to actually have a production of one of my plays and so they, I ended up uh, like 
they they put me up with this great family that I, I'm still I feel like they're I'm their adopted uh cousin or something. I, I'm still in touch with them. They still come to see my stuff and every time it has there's an opportunity to. Um and so I I lived I lived with them on the Upper West Side while attending rehearsals and and the second time I did an uh internship at Rattlestick uh Playwrights Theater. It's really cool theater, very yeah. very different. Uh it keeps changing every every time there's like this merry ground of American theater, right? Um, it was a, a different, it managed by different uh, people at the time. Also, I mean, everyone's awesome, but, uh, <laughs> uh, it was a cool experience. And what was interesting about it is like, I was supposed to be the literary intern, but the person in charge of the literary department, uh, they left the day before I, had, I, I arrived. So I literally became like the de facto, like interim literary manager at the theater. Uh, and it was like, I organized the library and I had a chance to like, see what like it is to create theater in New York. Um, yeah. What what was that like for you as a writer to see submissions and to see the volume of plays and all that? Did was it inspiring? Was it discouraging? Was it you know what was your takeaway from that? It was probably both, but it was really helpful to see the literary side of it because I mean, as you as a reader know, like it's just you know like it's it's so subjective, yeah. And like you have there was this like before I at this at this this is such a different period of this theater's life, but like there was just stacks of plays at the time. Uh, and so I organized them into a shelf system, but then they're all lined up all these plays. Uh, you know, I, I think I'd alphabetized them by, by name of the writer and like, just looking at like, Oh, they're going to pick like X, like maybe three from this or five, however many they produce, like so many good things are going to be missed. Obviously that's just yeah. a part of it. So it made it a lot easier in submitting. Yeah. So just know, like, it's not personal. Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. genuinely not personal. So many of them are so good. And yeah. you, it just, there's just a limit of opportunity, unfortunately. What did you find? Um, oh, well, before I get to your graduation, did you start doing screenwriting as well? While you did you study screenwriting as well? I did. And I, and I enjoyed it too, but for at the time, like playwriting just had my heart and guts. Yeah. Uh, and so I kept on that track and, but I really appreciate actually how much I learned about the medium and like writing in that form, even though I, I, I didn't focus on it ultimately. Um, I'm, I'm interested in writing for TV. I'd love to write for TV. And I felt like I have a, a little, having had that experience of, of, of learning some things about that medium, although it was more screenwriting than and not specifically TV at the time. Like, I almost wish I had, uh, more of an understanding of that as an option because screenwriting and screenplays and yeah. that form did not compel me the same way that TV currently does. Why is that? Why, why is TV your passion and not film? Cause it's so much more character driven. Yeah. Um, and it's so much, it's, it's so like, then there's more space for these nuanced moments versus like in service of a large, like a specific plot. Although I think that's not entirely true. There's a lot of really cool indie films too. Um, but at the, at the time I, I was very fixated on the way that, plays create their own structure. Uh, they self-generate like the, you can create the structure out of like the core if that makes sense uh, in a way that it doesn't have anything prescriptive that has to be this. I mean, I think there's probably some general markers and structurally mm -hmm. one should mm -hmm. maybe aspire towards, but there isn't like a stringent like guideline, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. or at the time it felt like there was for screenwriting and for screenplays. And I don't know if that's entirely true either, uh, but that was my impression at the time. And in TV, you can do something kind of similar with like the full arc of a season and the the whole show. I think that's so like in some ways analogous structurally. 
Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I could absolutely see that. When you graduated, well, or when you look back, I guess, on your time in school, how did you improve as a writer from having gone through now very focused education on your writing craft? That's an interesting question. I actually, I don't know because it's hard to tell with like just practice versus, um, and, and who's to say like some of the stuff you write when you're young can be so good because you have, are not constrained by anything. Um, and the lack of, of that, like the limitations once puts on themselves over the years, if that's helpful or not, it can be very helpful in some ways, but maybe it's a constant internal battle of like wanting to be a, you know, like Get, tap into that space again while simultaneously keeping in mind uh, what might make a more effective play. Yeah. Did you feel like, like craft wise, yeah, structure wise, or at least having experimented or, or been exposed to all these different forms of theater, did you feel like that had kind of been strengthened by going through, by going to school for it? I had more time for it, which was really great. I think mm-hmm. having having that time and also like getting, uh, mm-hmm. you know, hints at craft, right? Like, or or, or like what you choose to pick up that resonate because I was mm-hmm. I was a little bit of a rebel uh, <laughs> in some ways. I feel like the most uh, useful thing for, and I try to teach this too when I'm teaching, like it's about picking up a play and asking yourself what you're responding to within it always. It's it's not anyone ever telling you how to write a play. It's It's what you personally are like most drawn to in that play. That is your palate, like, right? So, like, yeah. I when you watch a play, watching it, like I said, like, with your body and, like, asking yourself, why are you feeling affected that way? And then thinking analytically about it and, like, not stealing the specifics of how they did that, but the thing that they're doing, if that makes sense. Yep. In your own work. Um, and I'm actually about to teach a class at the Playwright Center called Writing to Impact that's very grounded in, in that idea, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Do you, uh, one thing I meant to ask you before how religious are you about going to see theater? Do you think that I know Mamet famously said, like, you got to if if you're doing anything except seeing theater, you're never going to advance as a playwright. Like, you have to actually. It's not enough to read the plays. You have to go and see theater to because otherwise, it's, you're just looking at blueprints. And do you feel the same way, or is it something you try to be fastidious about, or do you feel like no, I I, I don't need to be seeing theater. I can read or I can intuit it other ways. I need to see theater because I, I need to see theater. It's because I want to see it because I'm I'm constantly absorbing those things, but it's not consciously a choice, if that makes sense of like, I must do it so I can be a better writer. It's like, mm. I want to see what that other person's doing. Like, I want to, I want to like, just like feel it and understand it and like experiencing it because I love it. Yeah. Like it's, 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 it, I mean, religious in the sense that it feels like religious in a way that's like <laughs> right, secular, right. but not religious in the sense of like, right, you have right. to in order. And also like, conversely, I don't know if it's true of every writer, like Sam Shepard said, like rodeo, right. was just as effective for him as seeing theater. Like don't go see right. theater, go see rodeo. Right. right like it, right, right. it can really vary on like what one roots their understanding of playwriting in. For me personally, I love, I, I think plays and, and seeing plays speaks to me. And I, in high school, I read across the shelf. And it was just like reading sometimes that I was going to like a play a day at a point, like um, wow. just like asking the questions and wanting to understand it. It's very personal though. It's everyone has their own journey. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Did you, did you, st- when did you start to see theater on a regular basis? I mean, we talked about your first theatrical experience, but I mean, what was, when did you, when did you even have the access and ability to see theater on a semi-regular basis? 
I was lucky that my high school had did a lot of plays. So it was mm-hmm. like my most, uh, you know, the greatest access I had was through like what, what the theater department is doing. Right. Mm-hmm. But also as soon as I could drive, <laughs> I went to see plays in Austin and plays in Austin back at that time. We were like, we, had, there was some really cool theater that I, I remember there was one play like particularly like uh, affected me in a way like, like, but I was already writing. I was just more like, wow, that's what you can do. I was sitting in the front row and like, there's a, every element of this play, the sound, the, the, the way that, uh, the set transformed, uh, was so alive and, 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 and visceral that when there was, uh, there's a moment, there's like a, a bomb in a filing cabinet in this play at the, at the climax. And I was like, really convinced the theater was going to explode. And so for a while, I was like, I want to write plays that make the audience feel like the theater's going to explode. <laughs> and that's, that's still true. Maybe that is true. It's funny you say that because I think one of my, I mean, again, I say after four, after reading four of your plays, the one indelible takeaway I always have from your plays is atmosphere. There's mm-hmm. always an aura. There's always a, a, a tangible sense uh, that you've built into the atmosphere and the, and the location and the setting of your plays. And atmosphere seems like a really important characteristic of a Debra Yarchin play. Wow. That's my takeaway. Um, is that conscious? Am I reading into something? Or is that intentional? on your part i mean i and I, I should say you did mention having smelled the play before it was written i was like my yes of course yep i that makes sense having read your stuff yeah that I, I absolutely see where you're coming from so i'm just wondering yeah how how ingrained is that and how uh and or how much are you overtly trying to affect the atmosphere of the play i think it's part of the language of the theater right yeah. uh it's also so it's sensorial um I mean, even even uh, Aristotle's like language that has been made sensuously attractive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's definitely true. But you do, but you do pay a lot of attention to setting, I, yeah. and not and and. It, I mean, I, there are plenty of playwrights that don't, um, you know, and that it's about other things. But but that really is a major character. It seems like in all of your work. That's interesting. Yeah, I I, I would say place and setting. Archive, maybe that's also a part of, uh, you know, having been so many different places and wanting to speak specifically, like the the place always feels like it has a character. Yeah. And, and maybe I, I joke like my work's geographically discombobulated. I mean, at this point, I was raised in Texas. I spent time on the East Coast. I spent years in the Midwest. Now I'm in like, you know, Los Angeles. So I've like won the bingo of the United States and, and I'm, <laughs> I'm hungry to encapsulate America. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and each, each place in itself being a setting that I've been that the worlds take hold and it feels like an important part of the, the, the play it has to be rooted in, in, in place um i'm gonna throw some out here that i just want to get your reaction to it and i was waiting for this show to get your reaction to it how big a role does fear play in your writing hmm. do you that's a really it, interesting question oh well, thanks i i've been i've been really wanting to ask you that for a long time uh but it's it, it, it just seems that it's a present character in all your plays. And, and, but I don't know if I'm reading into that or if, again, if that's an over choice or if that's just, you know, part of the cost of doing business when you put pen to paper. What do you mean by fear though? Like in, in how it, I feel like in every play of yours that I've read, there are, I'm trying to think if it's the characters or if it's the, yeah, I think it's the characters that 
Yeah, I think in every play I've read, I feel like the protagonist, maybe not as much in Drive, but I feel like I feel like fear is like a lot of your why, a lot of the why of the play is based in fear. So why we're talking about this problem set, why we're dealing with this issue, why the stakes are what the stakes are is driven because of the fear and sometimes a very obvious fear. Sometimes the threat is a lot more, you know, it's on the page. You see why somebody would be afraid, but I feel like fear is a, is a component of it. Hmm. I don't know, but you tell me, am I, am I, I mean, is this just, <laughs> do I need to go see a shrink or, no, or is no, there something you're, No, I probably do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, is, I, well, I was going to say, it's great. I mean, it's amazing. It makes for amazing writing because there's always a stake. There's always, what I love about it is that it, and I, uh, let me be clear. I'm not saying this in, in any sort of derogatory way. I'm saying it as it's, it, there's always, I feel like there's always a ticking time bomb because there's always a neuroses or a. Um, latent or sometimes not so latent fear that is bubbling just beneath the surface of at least one central character that makes it compelling and makes you go, wait, what is this founded? Is it unfounded? And what's, how is this going to unspool? That's what I see. I mean, I've lived with a lot of anxiety in my life. So I wonder if that factors into when you feels like name bones, you, I don't, I don't like you want to create that, replicate that experience, not to, uh, you know, cause people to feel a bad thing, but to shake them up, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, it's not, it, it definitely is that it's something that I say, I think as a, not that you're trying to do this, but as a device, it works, but also that it, it does shake you up. It, I mean, I would say in the middle of reading 200 plays, I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm grabbed on this. And why am I grabbed? Oh, well, there's something tugging at me. And it's because this character has something bubbling underneath. And it's, I think in like great white, it was more overt where I could go, oh, okay, I get it. Like there's, like she says, there's some bad shit that's about to happen, but it's sometimes it's also, but you know, there's, there's this seething undercurrent sometimes that would just bubble up and you'd be like, whoa, whoa, something else is happening here. There's something there's the, and, and even a tectonic melange, the kind of greater, you know, the, uh, socioeconomic fears and, uh, you know, uh, geological fears or, or uh, ecological fears. And, you know, it, it was just, I don't know. It, so I just thought, yeah, there's, I wonder, I wonder how conscious that is. Maybe, maybe a little conscious. Cause I mean, I don't know. Don't you feel that every day? <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> like in this, in, in where we are and like, you know, as a country and where everything is going, it, it always feels like that's there. Right. It totally, I guess how it manifests was, was so interesting because I think probably a lot of people feel that. I'm not sure a lot of people could have the ability mm. to articulate that and write that. And in a way that's not on the nose. I mean, trust me, 200 plays, each submission character category, uh, it was always, there's always people that are writing very much about a fear, but it was, but it was about the fear and it was very overt and it was on the nose, but to write it in a way that it's um, just adding to the atmosphere. It's just in the mix. It's in the stew. But it's not the meat and potatoes in the stew. It's not, you know, what it's about. It's just it adds to the complexity and the nuance and the depth of the characters and of their circumstances. Yeah, that's that's a great observation. I really appreciate that you're picking up that. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, as I say, I, I feel privileged to have read four of them. And I was I like, I, I mean, again, doesn't make me a subject matter expert on it, but I, I definitely, I, I was like, God, I, I feel like this is this, you know, I could tell when it was your play. Mm-hmm. Let me say it that way. You does that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 there's one thing like it's it, the bigger issues, like, right. That are uh, plays explore. It's like, instead of being overt and on the nose about them, I prefer to help pe- have people feel it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, yeah, like with climate change, with everything that's happening, like you can write a play about climate change or you can make us feel it. Well, even though yeah. that's not specific to any of the yeah. Yeah. white, but like, <laughs> no, no, but it, it's interesting. You say that because what, uh, I'll tell you something else that I loved about your work, and I and I I'll try to put in the form of a question. Um, I love that you talk about inherently political subjects often, but it never becomes polemical. Hmm. That's in- exceptionally rare in what I've read, and and i'm wondering if, if you talked about the talmudic approach before and you know not seeing the need to tie things up in a bow if that's kind of what resolves what mitigates that that you just continue to question and you don't try to posit an answer you just but by asking the questions it allows people it walks people down a path of these characters and we don't necessarily have to get to an answer and you're not reverse engineering a story into an answer you're just leading us on a journey and that journey just has its own trajectory that isn't tied to a political or an outcome or a political outcome or a narrative outcome necessarily. Is that true? Yeah. And also like, I mean, when talking about the politics, there's characters who don't represent necessarily like everyone in the audience's perspective. And that's a little bit by design because I, I, I don't know, I feel this deep division in our country and I think everything is like, of course there are clear in in some ways, like ways of, of of being polemical about it, but also like everything is really complex and nuanced at the end yeah. of the day, and people fail to see the gray areas, and those gray areas are really the most interesting places that, uh, and especially because most people are propelled by good, not yeah. bad. Every everybody that's the most fascinating takeaway, even even like horrific, horrifically people in Nazi Germany, like everybody, it seems like this impulse that can be tacked and and taken advantage of that leads to the worst things, um, and trying to see things from that angle. And re- recognizing the common humanity, even when we have views across a, a chasm, feels really, really, really critical. Yeah. Um, and this, yeah. I was like, this, one of my things that's like kind of a, a guide post, like as a as a writer, is a, I think it was Robert Anderson. Like I don't I haven't been able to find this quote anywhere on the internet, but I wrote it down like years ago. I think it was something like in a book that uh, he he had written um, uh, about his work or about what he's writing, and it said it's it's really about it's really getting into the unknown. In the Middle Ages, they drew maps of what they knew. Around the edges of what they didn't know, they said, "Beyond here are monsters," and that's the area in which a good writer is writing. That's a great, yeah. That's a great quote. Whoever said it, yeah, that's a. It's great It's probably quote. Robert Anderson. If I wrote it down correctly, <laughs> and under, I just wish I could find it on the internet because it's such a good, it's such a good truism. Yeah, yeah, that's a great. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely, and and I just I I, yeah, I'm just going to underscore that because I really. I so appreciated that. There's so much work, I think, especially in the theater. And I think probably because most people that are in the theater tend to see things relatively the same way, not exclusively, but relatively the same way. So to have someone come into it with such, for lack of a better word, compassion, uh, 360 degree treatment, 
of characters and not and making them more than their political positions so that it's not a caricature it never devolves into archetype or anything like that but it's it's truly an interesting character study and allows us to sit back relax and just indulge in this world um that you've create i i really find that to be rare thank you and and well done but you know yeah really um anyway See, I get to I get to say all the compliments I could never never really find the time or place to say. Um, Listen, people don't don't often share those things. So <laughs> it's really helpful and nice as a writer to hear. Well, <laughs> and, and just of, in general, people people are not as open as you are with that. Well, it, it's kind of funny, but I I do feel I know this is the twentieth time I've referenced this, but but I when when playwrights like you emerge, you become a fan of them. And, and you just, and so I speak as a fan, it's just, you know, you, you look forward to reading your work and or I look forward to reading your work. And so it makes it easy to kind of gush and fanboy a little bit because, um, it's heartfelt and it's well-earned because it certainly came in with a massive of other, uh, submissions. So it's nice when it, when it pops out, it, it's, it's easy and fun to talk about and talk about what worked. I want to um veer take a hard left turn into um something mostly out of due diligence to our subject matter on the show and your brother that's currently serving um how much does the military play into your life at this point and i'm not fishing for an answer or, or trying to bait you into an answer in any way but i'm just kind of curious as a sibling now and as somebody who's family not just your father but your grandfather and all that you know it's been steeped in military service and grandparents in the holocaust you've been constantly affected by current events how does that factor for you is it something that is it kind of like the holocaust like it's something that's always kind of around the periphery of your day-to-day life and your thoughts because you're kind of just attuned to what is going on in the world um, or is it something that's like, well, if he comes up and says something, then I'll, I'll think about it, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm living my life. He's living his and my dad's out. So it doesn't really affect me that much. Well, his occupational stakes are a lot higher, uh, for me. Uh, yeah. and, and we were, we were really, I think as a family, at least my mom and, and, and we were, we were very like, don't join the military, Daniel, don't do it. Uh, but he joined at a, at a time, like we, I think we managed to delay him a little before like a lot of the conflicts that have, I mean, they're still there, like, but they, it didn't feel as terrifying if that makes sense when he joined. Okay. All um, right. and, and it's still present of like, you know, like, Oh, you know, there's something he could be, you know, on the line. Fortunately he works in uh, communications primarily or not communications, human resources. Okay. Uh, and so like he, he's, I think doing postal, related work if i understand it correctly so it's it's there but it's not yep gotcha. it's not as as scary as it could be and we feel really blessed and fortunate about that what what was your concern you and your mom's concerns i i can i can guess but i just less than not be asked what, what were you your concerns about when he wanted to join we didn't want him going to war i mean nobody wants to see their brother serve in that way. Like if, I mean, I understand maybe it's like, it's, it, I'm sure it's an honor and, and, it, and it means a lot, but I, I, I don't want to lose my brother uh, ever. Like he's, and it's, it's, I think the, fortunately for my family, the, the, with the exception of, of course, my grandparents, like no one has seen 
or been on it on a on a front line, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, my dad even he was I think at some point when we were living in Germany, he spent two stints three months away uh, policing the no fly zone in the in the Gulf. Uh, but other than that, like there, yeah. it hasn't. We've been really really lucky. So it's interesting. Um, I'm I'm, I'm going to throw this out here. It's interesting because you're someone who writes passionately about big issues and current issues and your grandparents, you know, so affected by one of the, <laughs> one of the biggest historical events, uh, you know, of all time. Um, and it's funny because the military is one of those very few entities that it seems to always be focused on whatever that five meter target is in current events, you know, whatever the, the big issue of the day is, there's somebody out there doing it. So it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm white. Cause I feel like you're in the trenches in a lot of ways, thinking through problems and asking questions and writing stuff that does move the needle. And I think we'll move the needle and, you know, knock on wood. If we, yeah, we get this, that we get this show up and running, you know, I, th- I think, I think you do an awful lot. You're, doing and will continue to do an awful lot of work that does move the needle with that. And I kind of feel like the military is the pointy end of that same spear, but it's all part of the Mm -hmm. same spear because it's addressing a problem set and often addressing the same problem sets, but on the rough end, yeah, on the business end of that, you know, that like, you know, at a certain point, um, when the words aren't enough, then there's that, then there's that action and the two can exist in the same space, but it's, it, so that's, it, it's just my thought. Um, I, I wish I could, I was smart enough to put this in the form of a question and I can't think of one, but I'll throw that out there just for reaction. If there's, you have thoughts on that. That's an, that's an interesting insight and way of looking at it. I, 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 I don't know enough to like, you know, it's such a, yeah being in the trenches i mean as an artist one feels like it all the time yeah. <laughs> as a, yeah. economically particularly i mean it's not not an easy uh way to like go about things to yeah. pursue playwriting specifically yeah you you are you are insane i know that's true i mean it requires it, it, a little bit I think. it definitely does it definitely <laughs> does I, I mean in your perfect world you get complete unilateral control and you can you can literally I, you can dev out exactly the way you want your life to play out. What are you doing in your fantasy of all fantasies? Are you a playwright? Are you in LA and you've just written, you know, for seven seasons of a top rated TV show? What, what is, what's the dream? What's the fantasy for you? This may be impossible, but all of the above, that sounds great, but particularly getting the plays out and having it. I think at the end of the day, the, the biggest thing is like reach an audience, right? Um, having people, see the works and respond to the works, uh, having them live. I mean, what else are we doing it for? Plays are blueprints, right? Like you're, you can have, someone can have a great experience reading a play, but the whole thing is about it being produced and being seen and multiple times. It's not like it just like happens. It has to happen again and again in different iterations. Yeah. Have a life, have a lifespan. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. What's your favorite audience reaction? to your work is there one is there one is there one comment that's really yeah what is that it's not a comment it's a hug 
it's it's like when uh particularly like there's been a couple times like even just after reading like a female audience member i think it was even after the con before came up to me and just said that you know like gave me a big hug and and it's because it resonated with her and it meant something to her and she felt she felt seen in the work in a specific way wow uh and that to me is is the highest compliment as a writer when someone like compliments you or says thank you for writing this because it connected to them yeah that's fucking i i yeah i can imagine that can imagine um you're fucking awesome you're and awesome it's, it's been awesome <laughs> listen this is so fucking cool and um i i would love to waste your time even more but you've been generous enough and i don't want to take advantage because it's not we're gonna have to spend all this time together next week so um or a couple of days ago depending on when everybody's listening to it but uh tell everybody where they should be following you instagram handles your website all that so that you know people know if they want to learn more about you see your work hear about your work hear about all the awards you've won and the different uh fellowships you've had and all that they can just find out more about you probably my website's the best source debrayarchin.com just just my first and last name uh, i do have a section where i like include updates i try to update on social media as often as i can i'm not i'm not the best at that so the, it's more it's probably more reliable to see the updates uh page um and and chris i just want to say thank you your true advocates like real true advocates are, are gold and and really like the the thing doesn't happen on its own so thank you so much for everything you do yeah, that means a lot and and it's legitimately been an absolute pleasure and hey we're just getting started you know more to come i'm so but excited this is a blast yeah thank you we'll talk soon that was the savage wonder of deborah yarchin okay as i said before at the outset i am literally going to make us all late to get to the industry read of deborah's play the calm before so i'm going to wrap this up quick fast in a hurry um loved having deborah on and hopefully it is the first of many conversations uh that she and i will have over years maybe even on this show um yeah really enjoyed talking to her though okay uh vet rep bunch of stuff going on go to vetrep.org v-e-t-r-e-p.org vetrep.org check out any and everything we have going on please subscribe to the literary blog when you go there go to the now playing tab you'll see the opportunity to subscribe for free to our literary blog and that's the best way to get daily content written by veterans into your inbox and then at the bottom we put a bunch of shameless plugs to keep you in the loop on everything we have going on at vetrep february 25th Philip Korth's War Wound will be up at the American Legion Post 633 in Highland Falls, New York. You will see that, if not today, soonish on the website. Um, so that's something to keep your eyes peeled for. If you're listening to this episode later in the week, uh, you will definitely see a link up for that. And April 13th, we have, we're coming back with another Savage Wonderground in Alexandria, Virginia, in Old Town at the Principal Gallery. So again, uh, we would love to see you all there. That's a quick bunch of shameless plugs off the top of my head but go to vetrep.org for more details my thanks again to mike neal for being our producer and saving my ass at the last minute uh, by getting this episode out on the day of uh i'm christopher paul meyer on behalf of veterans repertory theater see you next time when we dive further into another veteran in the arts personal unique savage wonder